And we welcome you to the Wednesday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I'm sad to report that Dr. Ritu Raju, the president of Gateway Technical College, who was to have been my morning show guest today, was forced to postpone what would have been her first visit to the program. We look forward to uh, speaking with her at a later date. Instead, I will be replaying a very thought-provoking conversation from last year, which examines some of the fierce challenges faced by colleges and universities in the 21st century and some of the ways in which they are remaking themselves. Here's that conversation. Over the last few days, I have been devouring a very substantial and fascinating book called Commencement, The Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education. And this, of course, is a book that is of supreme importance to me on a very personal level since my full-time job, of course, is as a faculty member at Carthage College. But quite beyond that personal connection to the topic, this book is so important and really for all of us, uh, for all Americans, as we all collectively in one way or another grapple with dramatic and drastic changes uh, on the societal landscape that are, among other things, affecting the whole nature of higher education and our expectations of what higher education should be and should provide for students. And um, in an increasingly sort of volatile and turbulent landscape in which it just seems like so many things are changing uh, so quickly, it is important that the institutions of higher learning, not exactly renowned for being uh, nimble and quick-moving and quick-changing over their long histories, are having to become exactly that in a lot of different ways. That is part of what is explored in this fascinating new book, again called Commencement, The Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education. And I'm so happy to say that one of the co-authors of this really interesting book is a proud Carthage alum. Uh, Kate Colbert, who graduated uh, from Carthage with a degree in English. Uh, Kate Colbert certainly assert, uh, currently serves on the President's Leadership Council at Carthage, and uh, she has collaborated with Joe uh, Salastillo uh, in this collection, which draws, among other things, from the insights and reflections of more than 100 college and university presidents across the country. And uh, many of those contributions actually stem from a really interesting podcast called the Ed Up Experience. And um, it was no small matter to gather together and, in a sense, sort of curate and edit and uh, put into some coherent form all of these contributions from all of these important figures from higher education. Uh, but that has been done, and it is a really important and intriguing book. And I'm very excited that uh, Kate Colbert, who actually lives right here in Kenosha, can join us right here uh, in the studios of WGTD to talk about her fascinating book. Kate Colbert, we welcome you to the morning show. So great to be here. Glad we can have this conversation. Um, let's get a little bit of personal stuff out of the way. Uh, explain, first of all, your specific uh, connection to Carthage College as an alum. What drew you to Carthage in the first place? Are you originally from this area? That's a great story. So a long, long time ago, um, when I was much, much younger, um, I grew up actually just across the border in, in northern Illinois in 
and Grays Lake, Illinois. Hmm. Um, and I did my last two years at Carthage College. So I um, had an associate's degree from the College of Lake County in hmm. Grays Lake, transferred up to Carthage as a junior, um, and finished up my English degree um, at Carthage, which was a really amazing experience for me coming from a family who otherwise could not have afforded to send me to a private liberal arts college for four years. Um, I had the opportunity to, to earn that degree. Um, and today I still look back at all of the, the sort of nameless folks who were behind some of the scholarships that made that mm. possible, um, which is why I continue to support Carthage um, and actually have a named scholarship there um, right now. And yes, just yesterday got a beautiful letter in the mail actually from a uh, a senior at Carthage who was about to graduate who has been receiving um, the named scholarship um, that oh. we funded um, all through. His name is Cameron, and he's just amazing. Um, and um, and so just so proud to be affiliated. I actually lost touch with Carthage for many years. You know, went off to graduate school and got a master's in comparative literature and composition right out of undergrad and then went into a career um, as an English uh, professor initially mm. um, and then decided that I, while I really love teaching people how to write, I didn't love it as much as I love writing. Mm. And so went ahead and jumped into the magazine publishing industry and became a writer in the high-tech world, something I knew nothing about. Mm. Um, English major, no background in, <laughs> in engineering whatsoever. Um, but I'm really proud to say that by the time I finished my stint um, in semiconductor packaging, people were asking where I got my <laughs> engineering degree. So wow. um, I was pulling off the bluff pretty well, I think. Um, and that was a really great experience. I was actually the first journalist in the world um, to break a story about a little technology that I thought might create some innovation in, in wireless communication called Bluetooth. So, <laughs> um, so that was a great experience. Yeah. Um, and then I went into, believe it or not, back into higher education, became a director of communications at what is now Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science down in North Chicago, um, home of Chicago Medical School and the Dr. William M. Scholl College of Podiatric Medicine. Spent several years there and then took over as the director of marketing at Lake Forest Graduate School of Management, which is a standalone MBA program where I ultimately had earned my MBA just before um, working there. So mm. I've I've spent a lot of time in higher ed as a student um, with four different degrees and have spent a lot of time working inside higher ed, um, inside higher ed and then consulting to higher ed um, afterward. And it's just really my love. I've always said, if you can't go to college for the rest of your life, the second best thing is to work at one. Mm. And that has been my experience. I will say I have amended that now that I have been many, many years as a consultant to colleges and universities and not working inside one of them, it's actually more fun to be on the outside because I can serve mm. more of them. Um, and this book allows me to serve all 4,000 of them um, in the United States and, of course, beyond. Wonderful. Uh, the story behind kind of the creation of this particular book and some of the interesting collaborations that it represents uh, is really interesting in and of itself. Uh, I wonder if you could kind of Tell us about the crossing of paths, uh, some of that somewhat coincidental, which really led to this uh, terrific collaboration and ultimately this really important and fascinating book. Yeah, it was. I think it was almost faded. So I've been very busy the last several years. Um, I have a 
I have plenty of experience authoring nonfiction books. In 2018, um, I released a book called Think Like a Marketer, How a Shift in Mindset Can uh, Change Everything for Your Business. And that book did very well. Um, and it was a great opportunity for me to help corporate marketers and um, entrepreneurs figure out how to position their organizations better. And I had a lo whole lot of fun um, with that book and continue to, actually. And I've been running a communications consulting company all along um, that I founded about 20 years ago. And I also happen to own a small collaborative publishing company where we represent about 250 authors. And so I live sort of in this bookish space um, <laughs> while also consulting and doing a lot of market research for colleges and universities, including you know top 50 national research institutions. And I just happened to get a phone call one day um, from one of my authors who said, I know somebody who I think you should know. And he runs this podcast and he he wants to write a book. And I said, sure, send him my way. So I had an, a meeting, just a get-to-know-you meeting with Dr. Joe Salustio, who um, at the time was working at a different university than where he is now. And he told me this story that, you know, hey, we a, a colleague of mine, Elvin Freitas, and I started this podcast called the Ed Up Experience Podcast. And it's where we invite people at every level and in every function of higher education to come to the microphone and talk about what's really happening in higher education. And in fact, we also invite people in the sort of ecosystem of higher ed. So mm. the head of education at Google or whatnot. Um, and, and he said, you know, we've interviewed a lot of presidents of colleges and universities. And at that time, they were coming up on 100 presidents. Mm. Um, and he said, their insights are amazing. And, and somebody ought to collect this into a book. And I said, that's great, Joe. Do you want to write a book? Are you asking me to th consider publishing that? And he said, well, here's the thing. I don't have time to write it. <laughs> and I laughed. <laughs> and I said, I'm guessing someone's told you I'm a professional writer and I've ghosted some books too. And, um, and I said, are you asking me to write the book for you? And he said, maybe. And so we kicked off what really became a friendship and really started talking about the work they were doing. And I started listening to some of the interviews on the EdUp experience and realize there is something really powerful here. Because unless folks have been listening to EdUp from the very beginning, very few people are going to be able to make the time to go back and listen to 100 um, episodes of Presidents um, and to be able to, to really sort of coalesce the themes and figure out what does it all mean? Um, and what does it mean for me if I work in higher education? Or what does it mean for my kid if they're headed off to college? And so I was hooked. And I said, absolutely. And I said, but by the way, I have expertise in higher education. I've worked in it. I consult to it. Um, I said, I think my name should be on this book, too. Let's write this together. Let's partner. Um, and it was just magic. Hmm. Um, the co-founder of EdUp, Elvin Freitas, um, wrote sidebars for the book as well. Um, but Joe and I got to work, and I started listening. Um, we ultimately used, um, for the research, 125 college and university presidents. And we did additional research, anonymous research, with higher education professionals to find out what they were really feeling and thinking and what was happening inside their institutions. So the book is full of proprietary information um, and really exciting um, thoughts. The timing was really fascinating as well. So the EdUp Experience podcast launched in January 2020, mm -hmm. right? So not knowing we were about to be hit with a global pandemic, which would change higher education forever, um, somewhat for the better and somewhat for the worse. The microphone was on at the EdUp Experience podcast, and higher education leaders, folks at the C-suite, those presidents, those you know chief academic officers, rarely will speak to the media um, historically without checking every word with their PR person, right? Um, but something magical happened when everyone went home, 
and mm. started working from home during quarantine. And they started accepting interviews without running it past the powers mm. that be. And the conversations became really candid. And the conversations were happening during crisis. And quite by happenstance, this book ended up um, having really, really phenomenal insights about leadership during exigent circumstances and how to take, as you had said in this intro, how do you take an industry that is just historically known for moving incredibly slowly and how do you move it on a dime for the benefit of the students and the faculty and the staff who are in a really, really um, scary situation, um, as it were. And so we had an opportunity to hear from presidents things that they might never have said otherwise. And it was magic. Um, Joe and Elvin actually call me their purple uniform, unicorn because they were, you know, they needed an, somebody to help write it. They needed somebody to help analyze it. And with my background in market research and turning data into stories and um, and I happened to own a publishing company. So that made it really easy for us to get the book published and distributed um, to all the right bookstores. And so um, it was about a three year process and about 15 months of me doing the research and the writing. And mm. here we are. I that is really amazing. And I remember, we'll talk more specifically about COVID a little bit later in the interview, but I remember uh, somebody remarking, and maybe it was you, about how that podcast ended up being, in a sense, a real-time chronicle Absolutely. of what it was like for higher education and specifically the leaders of higher education to grapple with what was happening. And of course, at that point in time, it was fraught with all kinds of unknowns. Right. And, uh, and so you're not only dealing with a very, very difficult situation, but one that was evolving. And uh, what we knew <laughs> sometimes changed and so yeah. on. And, and, and to have, in a sense, again, unfolding in real time, kind of a chronicle of what it was like to be confronting that. Absolutely. You know, that in and of itself makes it just an invaluable document. Uh, I'm reminded, uh, although this book is very different from the books I'm about to cite, but uh, I happen to be a big fan of what I think are called oral histories. Yep. And particularly, I enjoy oral histories about lighter topics like uh, on the show I've talked to the author of a oral history about the TV show Modern Family. And, and for yeah. those who haven't you know, read a book like that, it's it's all these different people weighing in with their observations about various aspects of the show. And it almost looks like a script with the people's name in bold and then a colon and then what they have to say. And so yeah. there's very little in the way of a narrator's, narrator's voice. And that's different from commencement where right. we're hearing quite a lot from you and yep. these other, uh, these observations dropped in from all these different college professors. It looks more like a standard book. I'm just bringing up the oral history thing, though, because I remember talking to a couple of these different authors about how much harder that is than it might seem to be. I mean, it might seem like you just have this file drawer with a bunch of really interesting quotes from a bunch of people, and you just decide which one goes where, and that's it. But actually, that curating process and then figuring out how to make a coherent narrative out of all of that it's actually incredibly difficult. And uh, and I, I came away from both of those interviews with a really new appreciation for that. I should think that this, this book represented a very similar kind of challenge in that you had almost uh, what, both a luxury and a curse of having so much interesting information from so many interesting people. And what is it you do with it? How do you make sense of it? And in a way where it will make sense to the reader. 
Yeah, well, thank you for recognizing that. Um, and we've been really honored by a lot of uh, media outlets. Um, and Forbes was one of the, the first to say that the, the work to create this book was just Herculean. Um, and it really wasn't. It was, for me as a writer and as a researcher, it was the most difficult and most meaningful project I've ever done. Mm. And probably will not find its equal in my career going forward, <laughs> um, and I'd be okay with that. Um, you know, so yeah, I, the process was really uh, somewhat scientific, you know, so we started, I was late to the game in listening to the um, episodes of the Out of Experience podcast, so you know, I had to start with saying, okay, which ones are the most important to listen to first and, and get advice from Joe on that. And then sit down in front of, uh, you know, the speakers of my computer and um, thank goodness for um, for a software um, um, that helps transcribe things. We use Descript. Um, and I started listening to every single episode by a president um, or a chief leader like a chancellor. And um, I would listen and I'd hear something brilliant and I'd stop and I'd copy paste it out of the transcript. But of course, ultimately, the transcripts have all kinds of weird things that are not what people actually said. <laughs> so I would have to go through and change them and listen again and type it and get it perfect. And then I would just kept dumping brilliant things into sort of a source document of, of great quotes. And, and ultimately, we had hundreds of pages of that. And then what do you do with that? And then I sat down um, and started going through them and literally using multiple colored highlighters and started sort of hand coding and figuring out what are the top themes? Are there six? Are there eight? Are there 10? Um, it literally took us probably you know, six, eight months of research and work in this to be able to get to a table of contents for the book to figure out what is the outline look for that like for this. And then once we were there, then it got really exciting. And then I was able to start figuring out which quotes go in which section, which took many, 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 many weeks. <laughs> um, and then figuring out which voices sort of led the conversation on the particular topic, whether it was about sort of students as customers or, um, you know, faculty-student relationships or the financials of higher education and what keeps the lights on. We had an entire chapter about the pandemic lessons, et cetera. And so organizing that content was just massive process. Um, and so I kept feeling like, oh my gosh, my co-author must think that I'm totally ghosting on him because I had nothing to show him for month mm. after month after month. And I kept saying, I'm working on it. I swear, I'm listening to the episodes. I'm marking them <laughs> up. I used to send him photographs of binders with post-it notes mm. and scribbled notes. And, and I just kept saying like, I can't prove to you that this is going to become a book, but I promise you that it will. Mm. And it's all sort of swirling around in my head. And so the color coding and the organizing and eventually very, very far down the road, I finally was able to sit down and write the introduction because I understood what the book was going to be. And, and you're absolutely right. It, we could have done the really easy thing and have just taken a whole bunch of brilliant quotes from all of these presidents of colleges and universities and strung them together under sort of different themes and said, you figure it out. To right. The <laughs> right. But listen, academia is full of difficult, horrible, poorly written books. Right. We didn't want this to sound like a dissertation, nor did we want it to feel like some sort of dictionary or encyclopedia. We wanted the readers to be taken on a journey. To, we wanted them to feel like they had had the conversation with these college and university presidents. And we wanted to help stitch that together. Now, that is to say, we did not have an agenda going into this. So I didn't have five arguments I wanted to make about the future of higher education. We listened to what did the president say about the future of higher education. And what I love about this book, actually, is that, you know, we'll show you an argument in chapter two 
that somebody else tears apart in Chapter 7. And mm. it's up to you as a reader to figure that out, though we do give you guideposts. Um, and the narration um, really sort of helps sort of pull it together. And it's no... It's no secret sort of where Joe and I stand on some of these issues throughout the book. And then, of course, we we do go deep at the very end. So every president who was interviewed for the Edup Experience podcast and for this book was asked, what do you think the future of higher education looks like? And ultimately, Joe and I do answer that question ourselves in the epilogue of the book. But we really let the president speak first. And I joked with my husband when we were going through this because there was a lot of change in higher ed while we were writing this book, right? The pandemic mm-hmm. and and students really just wanting different things and a lot of sort of um, sort of abandonment of the humanities and, and more interest in, in, in STEM majors and whatnot. And we saw a, a mass exodus of college and university presidents. So a lot of them moving, you know, one president decided to go be the president of a museum or they were jumping from one university to another and there were a lot of scandals. And interestingly, every now and then we'd find out that somebody was involved in some sort of scandal and maybe we might not want to quote them in the book anymore. Mm. And I would joke with my husband that it was almost impossible to remove a quote from the book because I had worked so hard on the transitions between the quotes. So if person A was talking about a particular topic, I had to figure out how to write the perfect transition to sort of build upon what they had said and then bridge to the next quote Mm. that if I had to remove a quote, the entire chapter fell apart. And so I joked with my husband that it was sort of like in the old days when you had Christmas lights where if one light bulb went out, they all went out. (laughs) And it was horrible because if I had to make any changes to the book, it felt like the entire chapter would sort of fall apart and then I'd have to sort of start all over again. Mm. Um, The hardest part of this book, honestly, was making sure that we had all of the, the president's names credentials, titles, and institutions accurate at the time of publishing because Mm. it was changing literally up until the time of publishing. Wow. Wow. So in some cases, you're quoting people who were college presidents at the time and maybe by the time the book saw print, our former college right, presidents. Right, many retired, right, many retired, many moved on to other things, many many went to other institutions. And we tried really hard to actually tell you where they went to. Right. So so that was uh, not an easy process, but we make sure very upfront in the book that we, we just say, like, any errors or omissions, if we got it wrong, please forgive us, yeah. but we tried really hard. Well, speaking of not easy, uh, something that we don't need to dwell on this too long, but uh, I do think it's interesting and good for our listeners to know that as if all of this wasn't challenging enough, you also faced a very, very serious health situation, which had to be uh, an enormous complication in all of this. Uh, I, I want to just invite you to share whatever you sure. feel comfortable sharing with our listeners about what you experienced, what you endured. And, and I guess I'm, I'm particularly interested in the reason I'm asking is because I suspect that had a very direct impact on how this book took shape and the way in which you worked on this book. Thank you. Yeah, I think, you know, it's always important, I think, for us to understand the humanity behind the work. Um, because while I might have written um, a really important book here, you know, I'm just a human. Um, and I had a really human experience while I was going through this. So I um, was born with a genetic condition called hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a connective tissue disorder. I have um, sort of mutated and disordered collagen throughout my body, which is a problem because collagen is sort of what builds pretty much everything. Mm. Tendons, ligaments, organs, the vascular system, the eyeballs, <laughs> the muscles, the bones, right? Um, All and things so, you need. All right, things so you need. I, so in addition to being just very, very bendy, so um, I should have been in like Cirque du Soleil, um, <laughs> it's not good to have 
bendy tendons and ligaments, which means it doesn't hold your joints together, or to have uh, very, very stretchy um, tissues in your vascular system, for example. And so um, I wasn't diagnosed until my mid-40s, which Mm. finally made my life make sense. Um, And I had continued recently to develop... um, So so the things a lot of people know about um, EDS is that um, we dislocate our joints when we move, right? So, Mm. you know, you take a step and your ankle comes out of the socket. And that that's a daily thing, you know, five, six, eight, ten 10 dislocations a day. Oh. Um, I was actually in a gigantic brace and using a walker two days ago, but walked in here into the studio on my own two feet today. Um, but the biggest challenge that I've been having lately is related to my spine and my um, spinal cord. So um, in the midst of working on this project, I started um, discovering that I was having trouble walking and I was walking on my toes and I was tripping. I had what was called an ataxic gait, um, which sort of looks like you've had a stroke. Um, And then I was having trouble swallowing and I was having trouble breathing. And then I would sometimes lose the ability to speak for 20 minutes at a time. And I was getting confused. And ultimately what had happened is that there's a little tiny piece of tissue at the bottom of the spinal cord called the phylum. And in a healthy person, it's like a string and it's long and stretchy. So when you bend, your spinal cord has sort of play. It has move. You know, you can kind of go everywhere. Um, In people with my condition, that little piece of tissue happens to be very short and it gets stiff and it gets stiffer over time. Mm. It's actually the only thing that's not bendy in a EDS person's body. That sounds like the opposite of what you were describing. It's absolutely the opposite, right? So we have these bendy bodies, but we have stiff um, phylums at the bottoms of our spinal cords. So what essentially happens is we get what's called a tethered spinal cord, um, which impacts everything. And in my case, I was so severely tethered that it was pulling my brainstem into my spinal column. And so if I twisted at the waist or I moved my head just wrong, um, my brain would just completely fade out. I was blocking off blood flow um, into my brain. I was getting very confused. I was very sick. Um, I couldn't manage my body temperature. Um, I was, you know, having strokes. I have a crooked smile as a result now. Um, And it was very, very, very difficult experience. Um, And I just, I, I explain it as when it would get really bad. I thought I was dying and I wish I would. And... I was working on this book, and I was very sick. I ultimately had a risky surgery called tethered cord release um, at Frederick and the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, um, where a very daring neurosurgeon um, drilled a hole in my sacrum and that sort of block of bone at the base of the spine and pulled my spinal cord inside of its dura out through a hole and opened up the dura and snipped the phylum off. Um, He said that he knew I would feel better immediately because I was so tethered that my spinal cord literally retracted back into my body. Wow. Um, And so, yeah, I spent a couple days in the hospital and came home. I hope you spent a couple days uh, Yeah, Actually, only two, believe it or not. Wow. And then came home um, and learned how to walk again. And I'm still having trouble with a lot of things because because I'm so stretchy and because I don't have normal tendons and ligaments, um, my entire spine now is very, very hypermobile. Um, Mm. And so when I turn, I'm sort of pulling sort of vertebra sort of off the stack, sort of just think of like Django blocks getting popped out. And that's kind of how that works. So my neck is incredibly loose um, and we are working right now. I have a neck brace here with me um, in the studio um, and I'm actually really thrilled to be on radio and not television because without the ability to hold on to a table in front of me or to shift my position, I have a lot of trouble holding my head up. It's uh, hmm. sort of akin to trying to hold a pumpkin on top of the top of a toothpick. And so um, how, what we're going to do about my inability to hold up my head is um, sort of remains to be seen with lots of crazy things. But writing this book was really difficult because one of the most 
horrible things to do when you have a tethered cord or a loose um, cervical spine is to be leaning forward, Mm. um, sort of leaning towards a computer screen. And in my case, making millions of micro movements where I would be looking at a transcript on the screen, then tilting my head down so I could scribble something in a notebook or copying and pasting from document to document. And so I was moving my head up and down and back and forth millions of times over and over and over again um, on a loose craniocervical joint. My head does not sit safely on top of my neck. And so I got very, very sick. I finished the book, believe it or not, um, late, um, but, but which is not surprising. But I finished it on a cruise ship um, on a vacation that should have happened after the book was done. And we couldn't figure out how to get my neck to a neutral position to be able to safely finish writing when I took like a laptop with me on the cruise. Mm. My husband, Robert Colbert, man, he should just be like his name should be on the front of this book. So he's an IT professional. And I was getting very sick on the cruise ship. And I said, I don't. I can't look down at the laptop. What am I going to do? We're on deadline. And he figured out how to put a trash can on top of a desk, a little square trash can. <laughs> and we put, he had a full size keyboard with him, and we adjusted the screen and we put pillows under me and around me and held me up. And then I would wear a neck brace. And we have pictures of this. Um, I wrote, this is a very long book, 156,000 words. Um, I wrote the last 45,000 words all propped up with this like trash can computer set up um, in, in the uh, stateroom of a cruise ship um, uh, on our way along the Mexican Riviera. Um, and it was physically an incredibly difficult experience. But Knowing that this book was going to make a difference for millions of college students and thousands and thousands of people who work in and around higher education is what kept me going. There were Mm. many days where I thought, who would want to live like this? Who would want to have a body like this? Who would want to get up tomorrow? I would often get on airplanes and I would mutter out loud, please let this plane crash. Please Mm. let this plane crash. And I didn't want to let Joe and Elvin down. I wanted to finish this book. I wanted this book to make a difference in this world. And so in many ways, I stayed alive to finish this book. So mm. so thank you for asking. Um, wow. My health continues to be challenging, but the spinal cord is detethered, and that's one step in the right direction. Wow. So glad to hear it, and I appreciate you sharing all of that. And it makes me appreciate uh, the book and your efforts on it all the more, as I'm sure our listeners uh, all agree. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Kate Colbert, who is uh, one of the people responsible for a really amazing new book called Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education. This book gathers together uh, primarily the observations of 125 college and university presidents across the country, reflecting on the dramatically changing state of higher education and the ways in which higher education is called upon uh, to do new things in new ways and uh, what it is that uh, the typical college student, if there's even such a thing, uh, (laughs) what what they are looking for, what they need higher education to give them. And the book uh, is quite comprehensive in its scope and, and really impressive. And actually, there's far more here than we can possibly touch on uh, in the space of a single uh, morning show. One of the things that I did want to be sure to touch on in some detail is the chapter about COVID. And yeah. you've already talked about the fact that the book took place uh, to some extent during that time of COVID, and as did, of course, uh, the whole podcast, the Ed Up Experience uh, which was kind of the initial point of connection between right. all of these different college and university presidents and and, and so on. 
one of the things that you talk about in in this chapter called Pandemic as Panacea is that, among other things, the COVID pandemic taught essentially everybody in the world of higher education that dramatic change and rapid change was actually possible. I want to uh, read just a, a really interesting passage, and I think these are your words. Uh, this is on page two, 242. Uh, the pandemic taught us that change is possible, that committees aren't entirely necessary, and that there are no legitimate reasons, and frankly never have been, why higher education can't make fast-paced decisions to immediately and positively benefit students, staff, and faculty. Literally overnight, the higher education industry became all the things we've always wanted to be, agile, collaborative, compassionate, vulnerable, nimble, and profoundly less bureaucratic. I mean, even as someone who lived through that, I mean, who was trying to do opera workshop and voice lessons and so on. Right, right, by Zoom. uh, Yeah, yeah, (laughs) through the course of the pandemic. I'm not sure, even at the time, I fully appreciated all of the different ways in which what we all did in higher education had to change. I mean, it was obvious that a lot had changed. But I think you're talking even above and beyond what was immediately apparent to us and 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 speaking to more fundamental changes that we probably don't fully appreciate even now. And And I think what you're saying is those are incredibly valuable lessons that higher education needs to learn better and sort of take to heart. Tell yeah. us more about that really important observation. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And that's actually one of... I- one of the many brilliant things I said in the book, right? Yeah, that was, that actually was me. Um, so yeah, all the poll quotes are me. Um, you know, listen, it, you know, you're absolutely right. So everyone was in it. Faculty members were so busy trying to figure out how to serve their students. And, and one of the big, I think, challenges that you all as faculty faced was this, how do I create, how do I help them achieve the objectives of this course to develop the competencies and skills that they were intended to develop through this course? And do it from a distance and do it when everyone's scared and do it when maybe the student is also sharing a laptop with other family members who are mm-hmm. trying to st- study and work from home. Um, and how do I do it in a way that does not have students at the end say, I'm sorry, I paid for a private liberal arts college coming of age experience on campus with social clubs and friends and football games and whatnot. And I'm still paying that premium price for this Zoom experience. Right. And so. So how the faculty really were the front line of figuring out how to keep students engaged, how to keep students enrolled. Um, So there was a, a massive, you know, in higher ed, we love to complain about enrollment. You know, how many students can we get for the fall term, right? It's always just for the fall term, which is silly. Um, <laughs> but but the real issue became, and, and has been for a long time, retention. How do we keep the students that, we've, that we have recruited um, and get them all the way through to some sort of graduation or completion of a certificate or whatnot? And so the faculty were really on the front line of that. In fact, and a lot of studies have shown that at, at many institutions, anywhere between 85 and 95 percent of the time that a student interacts with the college or university is with the faculty, Mm. right? And so, but are the faculty being appropriately resourced? Are they being appropriately trained? Are they being appropriately uh, supported? And so you all were at the very front of that, but you're absolutely right. The changes happened 
to the entire culture, to the entire system, college and university presidents and deans and chief academic officers were having to make big decisions. Um, and they were having to make them without committees, <laughs> without a board meeting, without, you know, things were happening overnight. Um, and some of the presidents we interviewed for this book just said, listen, you know, we, we, we came right out and told our, our staff and faculty, you know, do whatever it takes um, in order to, you know, to make sure that you're doing the right things for the students and for each other. Um, and, and looking back on that, we now I think colleges and universities belong to two camps. One is the camp of, of folks who realized, wait, we can be nimble. We can move quickly. We don't have to be stuck in these weird old traditions. And, you know, we can operate in the era in which we exist and not the era in which we were founded, which for many institutions is 150, 200 years ago. And then there's the other camp of, of folks who, as soon as their campuses reopened and things seemed to settle down and, and people stopped wearing masks or being tested for COVID so often, they went right back to these sort of old school ways of operation. And sadly, the institutions that have gone back, um, they do it at their peril because mm. their students, their customers, um, have seen a different and better way. They have seen more compassion. They have seen what happens when they say, but my car broke down and a $400 repair on my car is enough to keep me from being able to come back to class and I'm going to have to drop out. And some institutions are saying, don't worry, we actually have, you know, we have grants, we have emergency grants, like we'll give you the $400, get back to class on Monday. And then there are institutions that aren't doing things like that and not meeting students where they are. And the institutions that learned a lot, that's why we call it pandemic as panacea. There were so many problems in higher ed and the pandemic actually forced us to fix many of them. The institutions that have figured it out and realized, wait, this was an opportunity for us to evolve and grow and sort of kill some sacred cows and innovate in new ways. Those are the ones that are doing well and that are growing. And the ones that went right back to the old way of doing things are the ones that are showing up in those lists of colleges that are being um, acquired or more likely um, closing. And we've seen a lot of college and university closures in the last, even just the last couple of months. Right. It's uh, an interesting world. And I think one of the intriguing things is is a, a, a great line. I probably can't lay my hands on it. But at some point, somebody says uh, that you know one of the things you learn in higher education is that more than one thing can be true yeah. at the same time, yeah. and 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 so you know in a sense, uh, when when one talks about, for instance, completely innovating and kind of yeah. of shucking away the old and so on, that that in a sense you know that might be true, but that doesn't have to be the entire story that. I mean that there is a place for tradition. There is a place for you know, there's a, there's a place for more things than one thing at a time. Or I guess that's one approach to this. Yeah, which is a little less scary for maybe some of us who are maybe more rooted in tradition and right. and, and and are sort of terrified of the thought of all tradition being jettisoned. And of yeah. course, that isn't what this has to look like. Not at all. And you know, one of the things I, I talked about long before this book when you know I would be advising colleges and universities that were 100 plus years old and were coming sort of to, to the market with different kinds of programs and different ways of, um, you know, uh, you know, innovations like non-standard terms, all the schools that have gotten rid of um, uh, the agrarian schedule and big semesters mm. and have gone to um, sort of these non-standard terms, which you look at folks like Western Governors University, um, which is really innovated in this space and is, is growing leaps and bounds. Um, you know, I always tell people that it, it, is, it is both. Um, it's not 
oh, no, things are changing. Therefore, the way it was when I was a college student is no longer being respected or, or well regarded. We are in a different time. It is possible for us to look at our storied past and be proud of where we've been and be proud and thankful to the leaders of those institutions who led us through certain eras and yet to be able to say upon that storied past, we're going to build a really bold new future. And and perhaps that bold new future would not be possible had we not had these traditions this story, and, and this, this history as an institution. So I think it's really important for colleges and universities to understand where they've been and their history. Actually, it, it, we did an interview with the president of um, Fresno State, and, and he talked a lot about it's important to understand how your institution was founded, for whom and why, because that can inform where you're headed, even mm. if that has changed. And so, um, you know, he tells a really great story about how they're located where lo- fruit farming. And so, like, what happened in, in their region when they figured out how to do sort of stone fruits and what happened <laughs> in the region, right? And and do people who live near Fresno State, when they go to the grocery store, people who don't think of themselves as connected to colleges or universities at all, do they realize that the fruits and vegetables that are being sold in their grocery store um, are the results of uh, agricultural innovations that are taught at Fresno no state, right? Mm. And so so it's really important, I think, for us to understand that by moving forward and evolving and innovating in higher education is not us sort of thumbing our nose at the past. You know, higher education um, and the pursuit of it is a time-honored tradition, but traditions change. Right. It, they really do. And they need to. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I found the line, and this is oh, this great. is your writing again. You wrote, um, and this is when you were talking about this need for us to think uh, about more than just that pretty paper. That, right, right. That, that cannot be the end game uh, and that we need to really be thinking about uh, – the benefits of a higher education in objective, measurable ways. You do go on to say, but if our conversations with the brightest and most influential minds in higher education have taught us anything, it's that many things are simultaneously true in modern post-secondary education. And a few pages later in that same chapter called Not Just a Pretty Piece of Paper, uh, somebody named Lee Lambert from Pima Community College. Yeah, he's great. um, He says... um, We have to think about our degree programs and the context of skills. I'm not saying abandon degrees. It's not either or. This is an era of and, and and, and not or, or, or. Conjunctive versus disjunctive thinking. And I think that's really interesting. I mean, I'm sure it doesn't make sense for a given college to try to do absolutely everything. But but on the other hand, uh, it does not have to be completely an either or scenario and and probably should not be. I mean, that would right. not be a benefit to a given institution. Yeah. I mean, Lam- Lambert really, so, you know, President Lambert really sort of nailed it. In fact, we actually opened the book. Uh, my opening line for the, the book is higher education is no longer about or, it's about and. Mm. And so, you know, and so that's absolutely true. And, and, and you know, and, and I talk a little bit in the book about, you know, that that today to develop strategies and execute on them in a world of higher education requires fresh mindsets um, and a willingness to build upon or even abandon the activities and offerings that were once central to our identities. And that's really scary for people. But for folks who are not particularly risk averse and who Mm. are truly innovative, (laughs) they can take us in interesting places. When we did our research, we actually asked people how risk, how sort of risk tolerant do you think you are? And, and, and our, our leaders thought that they really are, but I'm not sure if we asked all of their colleagues, they would agree to that. And, um, but 
but you know, one of the key we asked about what what is it going to take to lead higher education, and we looked at sort of what we call a new sort of leader set, leadership skill set of the future, and a comfort um, with new operating models and new business and sort of innovative um, approach to sort of managing change was way up there as one of the most important things we need in leaders in higher ed. That is not what we were talking about 10 years ago. 10 years ago, we wanted a college president to have come up through the ranks as a faculty member mm. and then maybe a department chair and then maybe a provost and then eventually a VP and eventually um, president. And we want them to have been in a classroom and we didn't care if they had any business experience. We didn't care if they had any leadership experience. And we wanted them to basically sort of toe the line and continue the status quo from a fancier office. And today we're saying the status quo in higher education just doesn't work. The book goes on to explore really important principles like that of diversity and inclusiveness and affordability and about this whole notion of what does this lead to? What ultimate tangible benefit is this degree and uh, and 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 what is it that students want and of course the rapidly shifting desires of, of students all all explored I want to circle back and I'm afraid we just have a couple minutes left but uh, you know one of the themes of your book is thinking in more practical tangible terms about what this leads to on the other hand your own personal story is in some respects a little at odds with that sure. in that you received a certain education, and look at what you have done uh, with that education that you, know, that you you yourself said, in a sense, in a tangible way, did not prepare you for all you've gone on to accomplish. Um, so what do we do with that? Is it that the world itself is different now and that the environment is different and that the, just your story would not play out that way now? Or is it that that is a very exceptional story and that we need to think about uh, a, a broader swath of students being able to access similar opportunities. Uh, yeah, you know, listen, there are always going to be students and families for whom sending an 18-year-old off for a coming-of-age experience, living on a campus, um, having no idea what they want to be when they grow up, spending twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year on tuition room and board is something that they want to do and that they can do. But if we're gonna talk about access um, in higher education, we have to acknowledge that that description, that quote-unquote traditional student that I just described, which, by the way, about 73% of college students today do not fit that description. Mm. Um, so so the non-traditional is actually traditional. Right, now. right, right. Um, you know, but we have to acknowledge that that set of students, by and large, carries a lot of privilege. You know, they're typically white. They're typically upper middle class or wealthy. Um and they have a lot of flexibility in their lives to be able to go do this. That's not the story for most college students today. Um, the, the United States currently has 39 million uh, individuals who have some college and no degree. They've earned some, some, uh, some credit somewhere and didn't finish a degree. Um, we need to be serving them. And there are un unbelievable institutions who are serving them well. Um, but yes, if I were to go back to college today, I would not major in English, and I'm not afraid to admit that. Um, I had a great experience in college, but I went all the way through my associates, my bachelor's, and my first master's degree, not really knowing what in the world I was going to do when I got out into the quote-unquote real world. And we talk about that in the book, that the real world and higher education have to be paired. You have to be able to have had an internship, some practical skills, come out of college with an employment offer. Um, most of us don't have the luxury of 
quote unquote sort of figuring it out once you graduate. <laughs> um, right. And so and and so, you know, what are you going to do when you graduate? So absolutely. You're right. Um, I went through that sort of old school traditional um, model. Um, I happen to think that it's a model that is dying and the and the data shows that it is. Um, and I'm really, really proud of institutions like Carthage College that rooted in the liberal arts, but but that said several years ago, what does it look like if critical thinking can meet critical need? When Carthage College, for example, decided to open a nursing program, mm. which was not all that well understood by their stakeholders at first, and now it's their biggest program, um, and they're really serving the community and the economy and society um, in brilliant ways. So we have to take a look at how do we evolve the institutions that currently exist to be more, to mm. be better, to be different. And to, to your point, not to be all things for all people, um, but to figure out where do you want to make a difference and what students do you want to serve and how are you going to get busy doing it. But there are fewer and fewer 18-year-olds right now because of a demographic shift, because of a birth rate decline about 18 years ago. And right. so enrollment at community colleges is down 10%, and we're looking at enrollment being down up to 15% across the board in the United States. Um, by 2025. So we wrote this book in this time frame for a reason, so that colleges and universities could have some proof of what's happening at other institutions. And um, and I would I would recommend people take a look at what we the the insights from places like Foundry College um, is a really great opportunity to take a look at what does it look like to go to school for six months or so and to have a higher education credential and an industry credential and to be able to step out with a job with a family supporting wage. Mm. A lot of intriguing and, and, and incredible ideas shared in this really amazing book, again, titled Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education, uh, and one of its authors, Kate Colbert. Kate Colbert, thank you so much, first of all, for all that you did to make this book possible and for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. I think you've given uh, all of us uh, hearing this conversation a, a lot to think about, uh, which is so important in and of itself. So thank you so much and very, very best wishes to you. Thank you.